all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word at this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a message I call, Save Some. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without law as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law, law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. May God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. This is obviously a very specific statement, carefully crafted, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's crafted nevertheless so that we might notice the alls and become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You see, the crafting of that statement makes that last expression stand out. All, 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 some. The word save, of course, refers to the need of those who are unbelievers. Those who, for whatever reason, have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some have heard of the gospel message and have rejected it. Some might have grown up in some kind of church under some kind of preaching and teaching, but along the way they turned away from it and are now complete unbelievers. That's what's happening more and more in our own country. Some have never really heard a clear gospel presentation. But there is no neutral ground. Romans chapter 5 and 8 puts that very plainly for us. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's Romans chapter 5. You'll see that saved shows up twice in that passage. Uh, We are saved from wrath and we shall be saved by his life. And the same Paul then who wrote 1 Corinthians 9 also wrote this. And he is telling us what it means to be saved and what it does for us. You see, before we were saved, before we became a believer, we were sinners and we were under the judgment of God. That is, under the wrath of God. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that whosoever believeth not is condemned already. Already condemned. Why? Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
After going through the Gospel of Mark's account of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ over the last few weeks, you could understand how to, what an awful thing it is to, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, to trod underfoot the Son of God and crucify Jesus again. You may not realize it, but if you're an unbeliever refusing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in fact adding your voice to the voice of those who said, crucify him, crucify him. We'll not have this man to rule over us. But it was in that condition while we were still sinners. We understand this morning, you see, God didn't clean us up before he saved us. He didn't straighten us all out so he could say, yeah, you're, you're, you're okay now. I can handle that. We do that with our affection. Uh, some of you ladies might have had some old scruffy looking dirty old guy come up to you somewhere along the line and wanting to ask you out on a date. And you said, hey, you need to clean up some. You understand that? Don't come around here looking like that, acting like that. God didn't clean us up before he loved us and saved us. Isn't that great? While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, then we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We were justified by His death. So that while we were still sinners, we were declared righteous because the price of our sins had been paid in full. We all know that forgiveness, though, doesn't always equal reconciliation. But God did that too. So that by the same death of Jesus Christ that we were justified, we were declared not guilty before God by that same death then. We were reconciled to God. So that while we were enemies, then we were now reconciled through our faith in Jesus Christ. So this passage tells us that being saved has present benefits because we are justified and we are reconciled to God. And it has also eternal benefits because we'll be saved from wrath. And that's really good news. You don't face the wrath of God anymore. You've been delivered from that. Why? Because Jesus took that wrath for us. And when we believe on him. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior, when we call out to Him and ask Him to forgive us and be our Savior, at that moment then, when we are saved, then we're delivered from that potential of wrath. We're justified. We're declared not guilty according to law. We're reconciled to God. Oh, those are the benefits of salvation. The present life benefit to salvation can perhaps best be illustrated by a story I heard Dr. W.A. Criswell tell many years ago. He spoke of a young man and his wife, and they had visited his church several times, and he had visited with them just by chance, you might say, although he said it was by providence. He ran into this young man at an airport. They were both leaving out of Dallas on a trip, going different parts of the country, but they had just a moment or two to, to visit, to talk. And Dr. Criswell said once again, his wife, you see, was saved. This young man was not. And so he spoke to him about salvation. 
And the young man rather quickly responded, I'll be saved sometime, but I'm not ready to be saved right now because, he said, I have some living to do. I have some living to do. Dr. Criswell said that young man got on a plane, arrived at his destination, rented a car, and only a few miles from the airport, he died in a horrible crash. No cell phones back in those days. It was quite a while before Dr. Criswell got the word, and he was distraught. And he said it over and over again after that, and I heard him say it many, many times in many, many messages. It's a young man who said, I've got some living to do. But Dr. Quiswell said, you're not ready to live unless you're ready to die. You're not prepared to live unless you're prepared to die. You see, our life is so uncertain and it can go away just like that. We don't like to think about it. But we've all lived out that truth with people that we love and care about it here one moment, gone, the next. Knowing Jesus Christ then and knowing that we have our eternal destiny secure in Him. Knowing that death is not going to get the last word in your life, in my life. Knowing that then frees us to live. I don't understand how a lost person under the judgment of God could even walk out their door. But you know, even if you just stayed in the house all the time, you're still not safe. Life is uncertain. You're not prepared to live until you're prepared to die. And so the present benefit of salvation is that it brings us that great peace and assurance. Because we can live life with an eternal perspective. Knowing that these short years give way to eternity. And let me tell you something. The best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. I've had a good life, but the best is yet to come. That's the eternal perspective. This issue of salvation then leaves humanity ultimately divided into two groups. Those who are saved and those who need to be saved. Whether they know they need to be saved or not, whether they want to be saved or not, probably don't. Whether they're seeking it or not, probably not. They need to be saved. If you're not saved today, you need to be. And it is that pressing need then that makes Paul give us this declaration in our text. All things to all men. That by all means, I might save some. It's blatantly obvious that he did not say, I might save all. All things to all men, that I might by all means save all. No, it's not what he said. And so it was evident that Paul knew that all men weren't going to be saved. It's also evident from our text and from the facts of history and the facts of our world today that even the majority of humanity, the majority of men, of people, 
the majority are not going to be saved. Otherwise, he would have said that by all means, I might save most. I might save some. Some. We might think that the majority of people are actually saved. And it is true that many Americans profess to believe in Jesus Christ. And still, even with everything that's going on in our culture, the majority of Americans uh, claim to be believers and claim to be Christians. And yet we understand that many of those come into that heading of a person who claims to be spiritual but not really religious. Uh, What that tells us is that they have some kind of faith in some kind of understanding of God and who Jesus is. I was uh, reading the testimony of a man this week who said, well, we know how to live. We know how to, we're, we're, we just keep the Ten Commandments and do what's right. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Number one, you can't keep the Ten Commandments, and anybody who says they can has never really looked at them all that well. Because that last one gets all of us. You know what the last one is? Thou shalt not covet. (laughs) Uh, That's to have an evil desire or a bad desire to want something or to think about something in the wrong way. And that gets everybody. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said it's not just about committing adultery. It's about the desire to do it. Whosoever looks on a woman into lust after her, the Bible says, he committed all adultery already in his heart. You see, it's not just the action to those things, but it's the desire to do them. And all kinds of evil desires are in us. And Paul described that himself in Romans chapter 7. Now, we can think about this a, a long time this morning, but the fact is nobody keeps the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments were just crafted by God to show us that we can't. What does the law do? It declares our sinfulness, and therefore it points us to our need for a Savior. And there is one, and only one, that is available. There are other passages then that speak to those who are unsaved. And it speaks to them as being outside of the faith. I want to show you a few of these just quickly. Uh, We'll talk about them more toward the end of the message. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. Our conduct then with those who are outside. Outside in what sense? Outside of Christ. They're without God, without Christ. They're unsaved. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you might like nothing. 1 Timothy 3 and 7 Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You see, the Bible speaks often. These are just three. There are many other passages that speak of those who are without, those who are on the outside, those who are outside without Christ. In the cultural hotbed that our nation is in these days, many of those who are without take a very harsh view of Christianity, a harsh view of churches, a harsh view of the Bible, and now the politics, the politics that never seem to go away anymore in our country. 
Many Christians, unfortunately, because of this cultural hotbed, have grown to the place where we see those without as the enemy. And I'll tell you what, we're going to have to work on that. And by we, I mean you and me. We have to work on it. On the other hand, those who are without seem to see churches and Christians as their enemy. So how do we respond to this? If we understand that many people aren't saved, that many people don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, many people don't attend church at all and have no interest whatsoever in it, if we understand that many are antagonistic now toward the whole idea of religion, then how do we respond? How do we deal with this? And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 gives us a great example to follow. I am become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I want to put this uh, in three different perspectives this morning because, first of all, uh, this speaks to us of the perspective of availability. Availability. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I may gain the more. A servant unto all. This meant that he was available to serve anyone at any time, anywhere where an opportunity presented itself for the gospel. This requires us to have consideration for others. We understand that we're not just here in this world. We don't just live in this life for ourselves, but we're also here for others. And Jude puts it this way in verse 22 of his book, and if some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. I, I could preach a whole message just on those two passages. I'm not going to, but uh, I do want to remind you of the profound truth that Jude gives us in this passage where he talks about how that uh, we are working then to bring others to salvation. You see, no matter how angry somebody is, no matter how hostile they are to the faith or how apathetic or indifferent they might be to spiritual things. We must learn to approach those without with compassion and fear. Compassion and fear. Now, on the one hand, we tend to supply the fear pretty readily. If you don't believe it, just sit down with somebody and start trying to share the gospel with them and see how scared you get. We might think, well, that's a given. If I'm going to get out there and try to talk to people about Jesus, well, of course, I'll be afraid. But that's not what he's talking about. He talks about the compassion that we have then toward people when we see their pain, when we see their sin, and we understand then the eternal destiny that awaits them. When we stop and think, People, unless they turn to Christ, are going to spend forever in the torments of hell. We have then compassion toward them. The fear then is the fear that comes as we see them in their sin. And we avoid being drawn into it. Somehow we might lose our dread of it or even maybe, maybe even begin to make excuses for it. Begin to think maybe it's not all that bad. 
maybe trying to just overlook it or, or move away from it somehow or lose our understanding of it as sinful. Either way. He says, then we approach them with compassion and fear. Some we have compassion on them. And, and others we, we save with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. But in the midst of all of that, there's that incredible statement. Pulling them out of the fire. Pulling them out of the fire. Undoubtedly a reference to the eternal fires of hell. Moving back then, then to our text, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, we see again the alls. Paul says, I am free from all, yet I make myself a slave of all. To the church at Rome, Paul used another expression to explain this concept. He said, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as in me is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. You see, uh, Paul lived in a world where if you owed somebody a debt that you couldn't pay, they repossessed you. Uh, and you could be put in prison until the debt was paid. You could be put into forced servitude. You could be taken as a slave until the debt was paid and somehow it never got paid. I'm a debtor. You see, we look at service. I'm a servant. And we might think, well, that's kind of a nice thing. Well, I say, sure, I serve. We use that in a very nice way. But the word Paul uses is a slave. I'm a slave. I I'm, I'm made myself then a slave to all. Though I'm free from all. I am a debtor. Paul then speaks of himself and he challenges us then to look at ourselves as being indebted to bring the gospel to those that need it. To bring it to them with compassion for their sinfulness and at the same time a fear of it. The same kind of fear that he spoke of in Galatians chapter 6 when we see our brethren overtaken in a fault. You which are spiritual restore such one the spirit of meekness considering thyself lest you also be tempted. You see there's something about rubbing shoulders with all of this all the time, that we can get drawn into it. And so he first speaks of our availability, how that we are free from all. And yet we make ourselves slaves, a debtor to all. Indebted, bound to share the truth of the gospel. Availability. So what do we do about our great uh, divided country where there's so much hostility toward our faith that, that we're trying to share the gospel? We see people who, are say, or who are, need to be saved, but they don't know that they need to be saved. How, how do we react to all of this? We make ourselves available. We make ourselves available. The second thing that he talks about is the perspective of adaptability. Verse 20, unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law is without law being not without law to God but under the law to Christ. That I might gain them that are without law to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. He mentioned several different groups of people. The first was the Jews. That's in complete keeping with his standard policy. Uh, to the Jew first he said and also to the Greek. 
And he would mention the Jews. Later he would mention those who were under the law. We need to remember that not all Jews were Orthodox Jews. Not all Jews in Paul's day lived according to the teachings of the law of Moses. And Paul knew that. And so he could speak of those who were culturally Jewish. And certainly he knew them and he knew them well. They were ethnic Jews but not religious Jews. Paul could understand that. And when he was dealing with those kinds of people in that cultural situation, he could conduct himself accordingly. He also knew that there were many Jews who strictly followed the law of Moses. Of course he did. Paul himself was raised as a Pharisee. He knew that side of things very, very well. He knew about all their rules. He knew about all of their rituals. And when he was dealing with those people then, he could conduct himself according to the cultural norms of Orthodox Jews. He knew how to. He then mentioned those who were without law. And this would speak of those who had no concept of the Old Testament law If he was to read them out of the law of Moses, they wouldn't have an idea, no clue of what he was even talking about. What were they? They were Gentile people. Uh, They were paganistic in their religious beliefs. They worshipped pantheistic. They uh, worshipped many, many gods. And they had many, many idols and many traditions that were built around their laws. If they knew anything about the Jewish law at all, it probably had to do with their dietary restrictions. And uh, their separation from other people. In other words, they probably, the people that Paul speaks of as being without law, were probably about as familiar with the Jewish law as we are. We know they don't eat pork. Um, That's probably about all it was. Who were they? They were Greeks and Romans. They were not irreligious. They were not secularists, not by any stretch of the imagination. Many of them were devout idolaters who lived their life in the worship of what they believed to be gods. We saw that in Ephesus where the people of the town were stirred up because Paul and his crowd had begun to preach and they began to see a waning devotion uh, to their patron goddess Diana whose temple was in their town and And they stirred up that huge, huge riot where people were filling the Colosseum and shouting for hours on end, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And oh no, yeah, they they had a lot of devotion to Diana. You see that? Paul was raised in Tarsus. He would have been well familiar with the activities of the worship of their false gods in that town, Tarsus, as in modern-day Turkey. Uh, It it was a Roman town during Paul's life, but it had been under the uh, dominion of many others, like all of that region had. Uh, Their patron goddesses and gods were Aphrodite and Dionysus. They were prominent among them as objects of worship. It was also a flourishing mystery religion there, which actually in the days of Paul and in the time of Rome in the first century, this was the most prominent religion among the Romans. It was called the Mithraic mystery religion. We know very little about it. The reason was that the Mithraic mystery religions were passed along verbally from mouth to ear. 
They didn't write anything down. It was a secret. The only way you could get the information was to be a part. They had a secret handshake and were known then, as in many cases, by the people of the handshake. That's what they were called. It's a Mithraic mystery religion, the most dominant religion in the days of Paul, the first century Christian was born in the time of this. Paul knew these people. They were without law. They weren't without religion. They were without law. They knew what they believed, and Paul knew what they believed. He knew how they conducted themselves. Paul knew about their taboos. He, he knew how to operate among those then who had no concept of the law of Moses. It didn't mean he became lawless. It didn't mean he became a pagan. We remember that in Acts chapter 14 when at Lystra uh, they healed a man who had uh, been lame from his mother's womb. And the people immediately began to proclaim them as, as pagan gods. And their priests then came out to sacrifice to them. And Paul had to do some hard preaching really quick in order to stop them from doing that. He didn't embrace it. He didn't go along with it. He didn't join in and say, sure, let's have a festival. We'll straighten all this out later. No, no. He didn't become a pagan. Again and again, then, Paul would face the hostility of devout worshipers of pagan deities. And by the way, at that place in Lystra where they tried to sacrifice animals to him and proclaimed him to be God in a matter of only a few short weeks. Those people were stirred up by the Jewish exorcists, by the Jewish who came and stirred up then all the people and they stoned Paul and drug him outside the city, left him for dead. Quite a change. Worshiping him as gods, and then just a few weeks later, they're stoning him. But Paul faced that kind of hostility from these pagan religions. It wasn't just Paul. All of the apostles faced it as they spread out and fanned out over the known world. I faced that kind of persecution in a way myself. I not in any way to the, the degree that they had, but I can tell you. When you go into pagan cultures where they have a belief in many gods and you start preaching that there is only one God and there is only one Jesus Christ, God's Son, and that He is the only way that you can be saved, people get pretty hostile who believe in other gods and have been raised all of their life to believe in other gods. This message that there's only one true God and only one way of salvation. Listen to me this morning, folks. Will continue, will continue to incur hostility until the last person is ever saved who's going to be saved and God takes us home. It's always been, it's always created hostility. It always will. And so Paul has mentioned the Jews, the Jews who were ethnically, culturally Jews. He knew how to deal with them. He could relate to them. He mentioned those who were under the law, those who were Orthodox Jews. He certainly knew how to relate to them. He mentioned the pagan people and those who worship other gods. He, he certainly knew them and he knew how to relate to them. The last group that he mentions is the weak. Paul would speak of these in Romans 15:1 when he said, We then that are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak 
and not to please ourselves to the weak I became as weak. In a way, that's a summary statement of his entire uh, section of Scripture. He knew fully well that the scruples of the weak were not in line with the biblical revelation. In Romans, it was about food. In 1 Corinthians, it was about uh, pastoral support. Uh, but the scruples of the weak uh, were not always in line with the biblical revelation. He could eat meat. Regardless of what people felt. He could enjoy bacon and pork chops. uh, But he gave respect to the people who differed on that. To the weak I became as weak. We need to remind ourselves all the time these days, folks, that we have a bigger fish to fry than COVID, climate change, and conspiracy theories. We have bigger issues even than abortion, sexuality, and all the other messes that are being made in our culture. I always say, well, just look what they're doing. Indeed, look what they're doing. You know what they're doing? They're sinning against God. You know what they're doing? They are headed to hell. And they're out to take as many people with them as they can. That's what they're doing. But you and I know something else. Their only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We approach them then with compassion and fear. We become all things to all men so that we might by all means save some. Adaptability does not mean that we change our beliefs. Of course not. It does not mean that we compromise the teaching of scripture. Of course not. It does mean that we have to do exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Walk with wisdom among those that are without. Folks, if you're going to walk into a situation that is dominated by liberal people of a certain political party, you probably don't need to go in there wearing a MAGA hat. Let's just face the facts. We're not going to get very far without provoking a confrontation. When we walk into a room where everybody is wearing a mask, and if we begin to try to insult them, you're not going to get much further than that. We have bigger issues, folks, to deal with. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people without need to hear it. Paul's given us in a great example, availability. We make ourselves the servants of all. We consider ourselves as a debtor to give people the gospel to all. There's adaptability then as we recognize that people are different. They have different beliefs about a lot of things. They have various scruples about a lot of things. And we don't have to fight all those battles. Because we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last perspective that he brings to us then is one of predictability. That I might by all means save some. All will not be saved. (laughs) But praise God, some will. It was this way in the first century. It is this way still. All will not be saved. Some will. When Paul spoke to people about the scriptures, they had no idea what the Old Testament was, what it meant. 
If he spoke to them about Jesus, they had no idea who Jesus even was. Let's understand this morning that even right here in Cabot, America, we find ourselves increasingly facing that exact same environment. We have people who have no idea what the Bible is. And though they may have some idea about Jesus, they have no idea how Jesus has really revealed himself through the scriptures. Have no idea about the true nature of salvation. You'll be amazed at how many people live in our community who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. It's amazing. We'll not see all these people saved. It won't happen. But we can see some saved. And we will. God has promised us. That his word will not return unto him void. Ask any Gideon. They'll tell you that. God's word will not return unto him void. God has sent us out under the simple premise. He that goeth forth and weeping bearing precious seeds shall doubtless, doubtless come again rejoicing. Bringing his sheaves with him. So what this means for us then this morning is that it's speaking to us of how God's people, that's us, make ourselves servants, put ourselves in servitude for the sake of the gospel, become all things to all men that we might by all means save some. We have a message to share, and that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does this mean to us? It means we need to be careful in our conduct with those who are without it means we approach people with compassion and fear in hopes of pulling them out of the fire without ourselves being pulled into sin. It means we walk in wisdom to those who are without. It means that we redeem the time. And that speaks to us of how that when we have an opportunity, when somebody opens that door, even just a little bit, towards spiritual things, we need to take advantage of that opportunity because it's precious. It means that we must make sure our speech is always seasoned with salt. That it might minister grace. Why? Because when you're out there, you never know who's listening. You never know. It means we live a quiet life, mind our own business, and walk properly before those who are without. It means we pay our gospel debt. For we owe people the gospel we put it out there, and if they reject it, we've still paid our debt. If the Bible is true, and of course it is true, we all believe in the Scriptures, we all know that it's the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. We've read the end of the book, and we know how it's going to wrap up. And I think we're seeing it play out. Like I said, it may not be... It may not be the end, but I, I do think we're nearing the beginning uh, of the, the, the end of the beginning, not the, end of the beginning of the end, the, the end of the beginning. Somewhere in there, that's all there. If that all is true, then uh, the culture at large is going to wax worse and worse. How do I know that? The Bible says that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. We know it. But still, as believers in Christ, some, 
can and will be saved. I spent all week thinking about some. Some. I wish I could say that all of Cabot is going to be saved, but all of Cabot's not going to be saved. I wish I could say that all of Austin's going to be saved, and all of Ward's going to be saved, all of Lonoc County is going to be saved. I can't say that. Can't say that. And I know what you're going out to. I hear some of your stories. I hear uh, about you talking to people. And, and you share with me sometimes about the hostility that you encounter. How you try to share the gospel and folks just aren't interested in it at all. You're going to have those experiences. Yes. But yet, even when you do that, you've paid your debt. You've shared the gospel. You gave them a chance. You say, well, they didn't want it. Okay. We, our heart breaks for them. But there's others. And some will be saved. I hope that this morning we can all begin to think about how we look at this whole thing. Because the cultural divide, I'm telling you what, it's just getting wider and wider and wider. And I've had to pray and repent some for, for my own hostility because I, I feel some of that time sometimes too, and I think you do as well. You see, in the midst of all of this, we need to remember, we're not the first of God's people who have ever faced a hostile culture. <laughs> and number two, while not all of them are going to be saved, some will. Some will. I'm praying for our some right here in Cabot. And I hope you'll join me. Maybe some of the ones I'm praying for are sitting right here. Maybe some of you need to be saved. You're in God's house today. I hope you got what you expected. I don't know what you were looking for, but uh, you've come here and you've heard the truth of the gospel. There's no neutral ground. Christ died for us while we were enemies. If you don't know him, that's where you are. But you can be saved because the Bible says, whosoever, and that means you, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you accepted Him, His free pardon of sin? Have you repented of your sin? Then, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not telling you you have to confess every sin you've ever committed. You can't remember them all. The, sinner, the sin that condemns you is that you haven't believed on Jesus Christ. He that believeth not is already condemned. That's the story. Would you believe on Jesus Christ today? If you have believed on him, would you follow him in baptism? Have you saved and baptized? And you need to get in a church home. So you can have a church to invite people to come with you. And be a part of then reaching some. Let's stand together, please.